0: We're going to focus, first of all, as you can see today, on the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to talk about the Messiah as a prophet, and then we'll also see the Messiah as a king, and also the Messiah as a priest, and, you know, it would be a great idea if we had like a sermon series on, you know, Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Oh, I think we have that, so the connection uh, that we have between what you will hear... I've already heard today from Pastor Graham, and what we'll talk about was intentional. But then he brought up a few things that, again, were orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. So it is kind of funny to see how this all comes together. But in Jeremiah 33, you might want to turn there. We're going to look at the entire chapter, but I'll go through it fairly quickly so we have some time at the end. And I might mention this for our listeners and uh, our, uh, new, uh, all the people that are here in uh, the sanctuary, but also for all the rest of you to recognize that we, at the end, Always have an opportunity to go through a few other ideas, and that one today will be messianic prophecy, which again Pastor Graham spent a fair amount of time talking about today. But let's, if we can, go to Jeremiah, and here we're seeing a passage that really talks about restoration. You read through the book of Jeremiah, it can be pretty depressing and full of judgment, but now we come to a chapter that really talks about restoration and forgiveness. And here we see how God revives our lives to live. In true fellowship with one another, we also see how God delights in bringing joy to His people, and we will see at um, was it uh, verse eleven? Uh, yes, verse eleven. Even kind of a song that comes from that, and then we can also rest in His faithfulness as we kind of reflect upon uh, from chapter. 33 verses 14 and following the eternal covenant first with David, but ultimately with us. So that gives us a little bit of a look. And so we're going to look at the first nine verses, but we see immediately verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Yes, he's in prison once again. Uh, Pastor Graham was uh, reminding us that if you were false prophets, what happens? You know, it was his word. Uh, uh, that you use, but also, even if you were a true prophet, you suffered. And here we see that this revelation is coming to Jeremiah while he's in prison once again. And then we also see, though, this idea of restoration. Jump down to verse 8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And so this in the midst of some pretty bad news we've had about 32 chapters here of Jeremiah uh, speaking the word of the Lord and it wasn't something that would cause you to be the most admired individual in the community and now in the midst of some of the dark judgment we see some restoration and in many people actually call this section as the book of restoration within the book of Jeremiah because you see this image of restoration and healing that comes through here as well and up until now we've had quite a bit of judgment and now we get some restoration so certainly as we come to the December uh, period of time and we begin to think about Christmas this is certainly a much much more positive message we'll have today but as I point out he is once again imprisoned for his prophetic witness Uh, speaking truth to a culture speaking truth to power isn't always a career advancing situation Situation, And this is, of course, what Jeremiah has found himself in. And so here now, verse 2, he appeals to the higher source here, and that is the fact that God has given him this res- uh, this uh, revelation. And he looks to God both as the creator and God as the sustainer for his security. And since God is the one that creates all things, he possesses sole authority to forgive, to purify, and to restore all things, despite our sinful rebellion. And so, again, it's just a full for the first. First time of some really good news in the midst of some very dark pronouncements on Judah. And then, as the Creator, we also would acknowledge that God has full knowledge of what is and what is to come to pass. We'll look at that when we talk about prophecy in just a minute. And here, Jeremiah refers to this idea of the hidden things. You see that in verse 3 here. And this is the future plans for his people, which was a future hidden in the past but now revealed to God. That's why I thought it was so appropriate to do this focus on Messianic prophecy because we can see some of these ideas of the coming Messiah. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But since we possess limited knowledge, we can only really depend upon God to know the future. We know some that have portrayed themselves as future tellers. Wasn't well, that an incredible story about uh, Pastor Graham's dog Tippet, You know, going to the... But, you know, whether it's that or Nostradamus or Ed Edgar Cayce or you know uh, some of these other individuals. These are individuals that every once in a while get it right even a stop clock is right twice a day but most of the time they are wrong and if they lived in the Old Testament times that would be it because they have had so many false prophecies. But here he's talking about this idea of the hidden things and reveals a time when judgment will fall on the house of Judah and the invasion that takes place of course from Babylon but he reminds them also of the, those, the punishment awaiting the wicked, which we see in uh, verse 5 as well. So in the face of some of these strong words about death and destruction, we also now get to verse 6, where we see now, Hold! I will bring to it health and healing I will heal them and reveal to them an abundance of prosperity and security so even in the midst of words of death and destruction we also get words of peace and comfort and of course we have this idea that in contrast to those who kind of live to the vulnerability of living outside of God's presence and I don't want to ever live outside of God's presence I always want God to be my shield my protector my hedge but here he again provides this idea of prosperity and security and also a promise to rebuild Judah's existence even in the time in which they're going to be taken into judgment and also this idea of deep cleansing for the people uh, really addressing their sinful behavior but again what I love so much is we see again in verse 8 this idea that even in the midst of all this that they will be cleansed they will have their sin removed and this to us we go well course we believe in the blood of Jesus Christ but remember put yourself in the Old Testament if you have a sin before God you are waiting for this one day in the year called the day of atonement when the priest will go in and then maybe you have assurance for that short period of time that it is cleansed and here is now a promise of eternal cleansing which we as believers take for granted but must have been a stark kind of admonition Uh, That indeed, there will be a time when even in the midst of your sin, there will be forgiveness, there will be cleansing, there will be purity. And again, this is the idea here, as Jesus later confirms, the death and resurrection of the Messiah will bring glory to God. And for those of you taking notes, you might put down John 12, verses 27 to 28. This is a good passage in which he's sort of referring back to the Old Testament ideas, but also the idea that his death will bring glory to God to God. And then of course the key passage we've been looking at in the sanctuary is in the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.3 we see that here Jesus is the radiance of God's glory we see a connection between Hebrews and John 12 uh, when we see the promise of forgiveness restoration and security so again I always like to try to tear, uh, tie it back to some of the things Pastor Graham has been preaching through so that's the first section first nine verses then a shorter section here. Verses 10 to 13. Let me call your attention to verse 11, because here you see, give thanks to the Lord of hosts. The Lord is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Have you ever sung a hymn or a song a Christian contemporary Christian song based upon that? So that's where that connection goes. But let's look at this very quickly because we now see this idea of, Jesus, of the Messiah will give life and peace. He recounts that Jerusalem seems to be a place that doesn't have mirth and happiness. It's not a happy time to be in Judah. Um, and yet here God's message reveals something very different and with God the pain of the past doesn't necessarily need to be the fate of the future but instead promises to restore the joyful songs of the city and that apparently is one of those. You can read that in the Hebrew, of course we sing it in the English and it's this idea of joy as well. And so these songs of praise there in Jerusalem really indicate the restored kind of faithfulness because we're going to look at the covenant in just a minute starting in verse 14 and following. Uh, which was there and Jeremiah uses this Hebrew word for love most often associated with God's covenantal love. You know we have different words for love in the Greek you know agape love, eros love, phileo love. Well here this particular Hebrew word for love is this idea of God's covenantal love that he has with Israel. And then we see that of course we have this song of praise and I thought since I found this in the commentaries here's some other kinds of songs of praise If some morning you'd like to do a devotional, maybe looking at the various songs of praise in the Old Testament, here is at least a short list. You have one in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 34. We have Psalm 118, which is really just a whole kind of song that is a psalm and then we have a whole section of psalms that are actually the psalms or psalms of ascent when they would ascend into the temple and those are psalms 136 137 138 and 139 so anyway if you wanted if you uh, think about that from a idea of worshiping god we see some of those ideas there as well then the verse 13, we have God's love restores the hearts of his chosen people. The entire land, of course, is going to benefit from that as well. And then this uh, promise that the desolate lands would be abundant, that they would be full of stocks of animals and others. And then he uses the shepherd in language as well. And if we would had some time, I was thinking uh, last week when Fred was up here, he reminded us of a little video that I showed of the shepherd awaiting and asking everybody to call the sheep and nobody ever came to the sheep and then finally we had the shepherd up there uh, and then the sheep came Uh, we do have that on our website if you wanted to find that maybe we can show that in the future but again this idea of Jeremiah and the shepherd just as we saw it in Isaiah and other passages uh, is uh, available as well and then finally we see um, this idea that all of what is communicated here finds its fulfillment or its full completion in Jesus Christ and again if you're taking some notes you might I put down John chapter 15, uh, verses 9 to 11, which, by the way, are part of the red letter version. We heard about that today. Read the red. Okay, so that would would be part of the uh, high priest, uh, priest uh, priest the little sermon that he gives there. And then also in the midst of some of that, we might also recognize as well that when we granted this idea of life and peace, we also see a very natural connection with what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, uh, excuse me, in Philippians chapter 4 and this is that when we face trials and temptations uh, we see that we can rest in God's peace. And Christ is the good shepherd, lays down his life for the people, you see that in John 10, and for his sheep, and restores his people to pastures filled with abundant life. Of course the famous Psalm 23. So that uh, gives you a little bit of a look at the first 13 verses. Now even though this is a longer section, we'll go through this fairly quickly, but verses 14 through verse 26 is the eternal covenant that God has with David, but the Davidic covenant relates back to the Abrahamic covenant and some of the other covenants, the Mosaic covenant. So we're going to talk about covenants here for just a minute. And by the way, if covenants is one of your questions, we did have that ask Kirby question a year ago. So again, you can go to to PrestonwoodExamine.org, type in the word covenants, did a whole presentation on the different covenants. So if you're new to the class, or you said I need to refresh your course on the covenants, that is all available already on PrestonwoodExamine.org. Well, let's look at these covenants because this is very important. Here, first of all, Jeremiah begins to present this idea of a new covenant. Let's look at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days at that time I will cause a righteous branch, remember we talked about that last week, to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely and this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Now much of that still has to be fulfilled in our time but we can see that he's indicating a time when all these promises that were given to the nation of Israel will be literally fulfilled in this righteous branch who is the Messiah Jesus. Now this is kind of interesting because we have a couple of references happening simultaneously because Jeremiah is in some respects referencing the promises that were given to the Davidic king David and those who sat in that throne but also to the Levitical priesthood because we see this going down verse 17 for thus says the Lord David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in presence to offer burnt offerings to burn grain offerings and make sacrifices thereof and so all of a sudden they're bringing these together for the Jew you would have a king you would have a priest and you would have a prophet and those were three separate Offices, three separate people. They all come together, this relates very much to what we're hearing in the sanctuary, where the next two weeks we'll hear, those all come together in one individual, that righteous branch, and that branch will rise up to bring justice and righteousness into the land. I'll share how maybe as we go through our booklet in just a minute, how you could use that to witness to some of your Jewish friends, because what I have found today is is that even as the pastor was talking about Deuteronomy 18, that's uh, uh, actually page three on the booklet, so I'll take you through that, give you an idea about how you could uh, begin to use that in terms of witnessing. Let's finish this off, first of all. The coming Messiah will not simply know what is just and righteous, but he will embody in his life and enact in his actions righteous judgment and justice. In the Messiah, Jeremiah reveals kind of this perfect union of knowledge and action, a total commitment to not just simply knowing what is right and what is righteous, but actually perfectly living it out. And of course, that's the perfection of the Messiah. So then in verse 16, we see that he returns to this phrase, the Lord is our righteousness and emphasizing this divine idea. If you are with me last week, we talked about the fact that for many of the Jews, they might've said, okay, the Messiah is going to be like a king, maybe like a warrior, maybe like a general, but he's going to be human. And they started using, we saw first of all in chapter 23, we see it again now in chapter 33, this idea the Lord is our righteousness, this idea that there might be a divine nature to the Messiah, which is of course the case, and so this is something that would also have maybe caught their attention, because they were thinking of a human savior, and of course we have a divine savior. Then verses 17 to 20. Here we have this idea of the special role of this coming Messiah uh, everlasting and eternal Savior and ultimately we can see how these are literally fulfilled in Jesus, the Davidic promises, and again this idea of the promise that he will rule forever, so I gave you a couple more verses for anybody that's um, obsessive and wants to write those verses down here's First Timothy 1 verse 17, and you also have First Peter five, eleven, and perhaps the most significant in the book of Revelation, Revelation 11 verse 15, are some places where again you see that being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Furthermore, he reveals that the Messiah will fulfill all of the Levitical promises revealed under the Mosaic system. We see that in verse 18, which you just said. And so again, for the Jew, that's the Levitical law. And so that fits together. And of course, then we come to the understanding that no sinful human being could fully satisfy God's demands you would need a perfect eternal priest Which, in just a few weeks, Pastor Graham or Jared Stevens will get into. The fact that we don't have just a high priest alone, but one that can understand the trials and temptations we as individuals face. And this time we heard about Jesus as the prophet. Now, next Sunday, we will hear about Jesus as the eternal priest, holy and undefiled, providing the perfect sacrifice necessary for salvation. So that's next week. If you come to church and sit in the sanctuary, you'll hear the fulfillment of what here Jeremiah is talking about in chapter 33. Then finally, we have the connection of the Davidic and Levitical covenant promises along with the Noahic covenant uh, in Genesis 9 and the Abrahamic covenant we have in Genesis 12 and 17. So all of that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. If I had a little more time, I might spend it, but maybe we'll do that in the future, I'm sure I'm going to get another Ask Kirby on that probably, so we'll come back and review the covenants in the future, but again, some of that material is already on our website, uh, PrestonWoodExamined.org and because of God's promise to all of creation which cannot be broken, going all the way back to the Noah Covenant, then all of God's people will safely rest in the final promises that come in the coming Messiah. And so this is uh, one of those great opportunities to see how all of that finding its fulfillment. In the Messiah, who is a Messiah, not just for the Jewish people, but for all of humanity. Chapter 33 then closes with a reaffirmation of God's favor to his people. Jeremiah returns to God's faithfulness and has created order as an affirmation of his enduring faithfulness to his people. God does not plan a future filled with death and desolation for his people. He plans a future filled with, what's the theme? Restoration and life. So if nothing else, I hope that that gave you a quick overview of Jeremiah 33. We've gone through Isaiah. We've gone through Jeremiah. Next week we'll go through one other and then I might just mention that two weeks from today we have our Christmas event here uh, December 16th so everybody got their little booklet here what I thought I would do is uh, briefly and I do mean briefly kind of go through some of the messianic prophecies and uh, you will see as you turn to that first page uh, that uh, first of all one of the things that we have here is that all uh, so much of the Bible is prophetic in nature Uh, more than one fourth of the Bible's content was prophetic at the time when it was originally written. Gary Frazier has used that statistic, 27%. Uh, Mark um, at our seminary uh, as well has used that. And so there have been a quite a number of individuals. And so we have more than half of these, about 1,000 plus prophecies that have been fulfilled down to the minutest detail. Some of which we're going to look at in terms of Messiah Prophecy, others having to do with different historical events. And these prophecies were written down from about four. 1400 BC to about 400 BC and these ones having to do especially with Jesus were literally fulfilled in his birth in his ministry in his death and in his resurrection. Now if you find yourself saying this is a nice little booklet but I'd like to study this in a little more detail. Let me recommend a couple of books and matter of fact at the very back of this booklet you'll see that I recommend these one is by Dr. D. James Kennedy called Messiah, Prophecies Fulfilled which is kind of a thin book just on the Messianic prophecies and then you have this book, which is by Tim LaHaye, called Jesus, which I mentioned I think a couple of weeks ago. This is kind of a coffee table book. As a matter of fact, Suzanne had it on a coffee table up until today, uh, you know. And it, uh, why the world is still fascinated by him, and it has a chapter in there, chapter five. No, um, actually, chapter five is the one I'm going to look at in just a minute. It has a chapter on the Mess- messianic prophecies, which are chapter three. But I'm going to come back to chapter five in just a minute because of something Graham said today. Well, let's, if we can, work our way through just a few of these. And again, I'm going to be fairly um, quick on looking at some of those. But chapter uh, page 2, you'll see here that one of the things we see is when you open the book of Genesis. You can't even go any farther than Genesis 3, where it says that the Messiah would be born from the seed of the woman. Now, normally, in the Hebrew, it would be talking about the seed of a man. There are one or two other other places where you see this idea of the seed of a woman but right off the bat it's the seed of the woman who will then also uh, bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel and a lot of this of course I think relates back to the fact that already it is even as we are running into the first record of human sinfulness already the seeds if you will on somewhat intended here uh, for the future Messiah to come and of course by the time you get to the book of Isaiah, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, many of the rabbis, even at the time the Jewish scholars thought that they believed that that meant that the Messiah would be what? born of a virgin. And so we see that fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. But if you turn over to page 3 Pastor Graham talked about today the Messianic prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. And so I thought I'd mention that for just a minute because this I have found to be a very effective way if you're witnessing to Jewish people. Because it doesn't matter whether you're talking about an Orthodox Jew who accepts all of the Old Testament or a Reformed Jew or a conservative Jew that maybe doesn't accept all of it, they at least accept what? The Torah. First five books of the Bible. And in Deuteronomy 18, it says what? Well, it says indeed that there would be a Messiah who would be like Moses. And so I thought I'd mention this real quickly, because interestingly enough, in the book by D. James Kennedy, um, he has a chapter here, chapter 17, in which what he does is talk about the 10 different comparisons that he sees between Jesus and Moses, Tim uh, goes even further, he dedicates a whole chapter, chapter 5, in which he actually uh, documents 12 different similarities he sees between Jesus and Moses. And if you put the two together, you almost end up with about 20 different parallels between Moses and Jesus. Well, this is very helpful with your Jewish friends, because if there is anybody that is considered to be one of the most important of all prophets, right up there with Abraham, it would be what? Moses. And starting to talk about the parallels between Jesus and Moses is a great conversation starter. And so, nevertheless, I just put that one in there just to mention it real quickly because that's I think one very effective way to witness. This entire booklet, I think, is, can be very useful in terms of evangelism with a Jewish person because you have these Old Testament prophecies written down which the Jewish scholars at the time recognized were Messianic prophecies and then you have them literally fulfilled in the person of Jesus and so this gets to be difficult for them if they really want to kind of think through the implications of some of these prophecies now let's continue on because on the bottom of page 3 we talk about many of these prophecies that relate to the lineage of Jesus and again I talk about this because here it says first of all that indeed the Messiah would come from Shem well, we had three individuals uh, who were the sons of Noah that got off the ark, which were what? Ham, Sham, and Japheth. So in a sense, that alone eliminated two-thirds of humanity right there. then we can come to some of the others. It talks about being a descendant of Abraham. Then it says the Messiah would be a descendant of Isaac, not Ishmael. Then The Messiah would be a descendant of Jacob, not Esau. The Messiah would also be a descendant of Judah, not the other eleven brothers of Jacob. The Messiah would be a descendant of Jesse in the tribe of Benjamin. And then the Messiah would be from the house of David. And of course you can see Jeremiah 23, which we just looked at last week so you can begin to see that there is a very significant narrowing down of the Messiah now there's a couple of key points I think I even mentioned them here first of all recognize that at the time we had the genealogical records which are recorded both in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3 but for my friends today that are Jewish that are looking for a coming Messiah I say you're going to be out a little bit because after the destruction of the temple In AD 70, we don't know the genealogical records of any of these individuals. So I say if you're looking for the Messiah, it's going to be really hard to see whether or not he fulfills any of these particular prophecies about his lineage. Let's look at another one. One that's, of course, a very good Christmas message is, of course, that the prophet Micah predicts that the Messiah would be born in this very small town of Bethlehem. And as I point out, this wasn't even necessarily the intention of Joseph and Mary, but they were required to actually go that 90-mile trip riding and walking uh, to finally end up in Bethlehem where Jesus is born. We see that, of course, uh, actually fulfilled in Matthew 2 and Luke 2... Then you have this curious prediction, which we also have in here as well, of the statement that indeed the Messiah would come out of Egypt. It's in the book of Hosea. Now again, Jewish scholars looking at that might have said, well, what that probably means is is that since we were the children of Israel and we came out of Egypt that uh, during the Passover, that must be what it means. But that isn't exactly the way Hosea expresses it. And of course, we see that Matthew clears it up by reminding us that after Herod orders the death of any male child under the age of two, Joseph takes his wife and Jesus quickly to Egypt. Matter of fact, some people said, how would he have afforded that? Well, the argument that we say in our Christmas quiz is they received some gold, didn't they? And a few other things that, in some respects, the Magi may have actually funded, provided the funding for that trip and allowed them to live there for a time before they make their way back to Nazareth and Joseph is once again to earn a living for the family. Let's take a couple more real quickly. We've looked at the book of Isaiah, but we also see this in the book of Malachi prophesied that there would be a four to the Messiah and uh, because of the judgment which we've been reading about here in Isaiah and Jeremiah we recognize that there, is, there was a judgment on Israel and from 400 BC to the time of John the Baptist there was no prophetic word Just imagine that. You're waiting to hear from the Lord. To put 400 years in perspective, when did the pilgrims land in Plymouth? 1620. We're going to have in just two years now, about a year and a half or so, the celebration of 400 years. That give you a perspective about even 400 years in the history of America. But, of course, you have the prophetic voice was removed until John the Baptist is the uh, prophetic voice. And he is, of course, the forerunner to Jesus. Then we also have this idea and the timing. I put this in here as well, the timetable of the Messiah. First of all, the fact is, it says the Messiah will come and there is the implication in Malachi and in Zechariah and in Daniel and other passages that indeed the Messiah will come and there will be a temple. Well, you've got to realize, there have been times when there was no temple, right? With the invasion of the Babylonians, there's no temple. Uh, There is no temple there today after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there's no temple. So again, you can see how that was a very significant timetable. And then the more specific one, which we have in Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel's asking God, when would this Messiah come, he says, from the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the time in which Messiah will appear, there will be 69 sevens of years, 69 so-called weeks of years. Well, if you do your math, that's 483 years, or if you use the Jewish calendar, it's 173,880 days. Okay, when was that decree issued? Good news is that both the scriptures and secular history all agree that that It was the decree of Attaxerxes. It's recorded in Nehemiah 2. We know from history that that happened in March, on our date, uh, the first of Nisan, by the way, uh, in 445 B.C. So you start your counter and count up 173,880 days. When should you be looking for the Messiah? That date turns out to be Palm Sunday. So if you're looking for a Messiah, was there anybody claiming to be a Messiah on that day? Only one. And so again, it's another one of those ones that caused some of our Jewish friends to go... Well, you got something there. Another one, Messianic prophecy. uh, Zechariah, for example, says that he will uh, ride on a donkey. And I think it's kind of interesting. It shows that the Messiah didn't come in a chariot, wasn't born in a palace. We see, in some respects, the coming of the Messiah characterized by what? Humility. More importantly, then, we have a whole series of uh, ones related to his death, um, his circumcision, Uh, uh, crucifixion I should say uh, that he would be pierced we see this in Zechariah as a matter of fact Psalm 22 which is very significant in this regard I only put a couple of ways in which Psalm 22 is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus but Psalm 22 if you turn there right now you'll see how does Psalm 22 start Starts with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's how the psalm starts. Have you ever heard that before? That's what Jesus says from the cross. In a sense saying this psalm relates to me and in Psalm 22 it says that his uh, garments will be um, divided. Uh, We have some other parts of that that you can read as well. Psalm 34 says that he would not have any broken bones. And so we see all sorts of these prophecies which are cataloged by Matthew and his gospel are literally fulfilled even in the crucifixion of Jesus. We have the one that we looked at a few weeks ago in which it says in Isaiah 53 that he is grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death. The grave of the wicked he's crucified between two criminals. And he is in his death actually placed in the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And Matthew in Matthew chapter 27 says that's a fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 53. So those are just a few of those quick prophecies that you can find. And I've skipped some, as you can see, in the interest of time saying I would like to read a lot more. You might get some of those books. But uh, my chief editor for all of my writing, my wife, Suzanne, pointed out that when this book came out, I left something out. So when I do a reprint, I guess I will add that to that. Because she said, you left out the part about what's the probability that all of these prophecies could have been fulfilled by chance? Well, there are some wonderful estimates people have given. But the one that is repeated so often, it appears in the book by Josh McDowell. I think it appears in Tim LaHaye's book and a number of others was written by a man by the name of Peter Stoner, who used to teach at Moody Bible Institute, and it's called Science Speaks. And what he did was he just looked at eight of these prophecies, um, because he was convinced that... You, when you looked at he thought there were about a hundred different prophecies there are about fifty three categories Some people think there are three hundred and thirty three prophecies I saw one estimating there are more than four hundred prophecies Depends on how you add them together But he was saying that if you look at the categories of prophecies he came up with about a hundred categories Others have fifty three as you can see in the booklet, but he said let's just make it simple Let's just take eight you know, where he was born in Malachi, all the things related to his betrayal because people say he could have manipulated some of these others but he couldn't have manipulated the fact that he was betrayed by 30 pieces, not 29, not 31 he could not have manipulated that he was betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, when that prophecy was written, it was the currency was gold, not silver that those would then Actually, be cast on the temple floor, which you see in Zechariah, and then used to buy a potter's field. So he picked the eight prophecies that nobody could possibly have manipulated by himself. And said, what's just the probability that just eight of those almost hundred prophecies could be fulfilled by chance? And he gives some pretty low estimates, but we'll use his. And he figured that the probability that one person could just by the luck of the draw have those eight messianic prophecies fulfilled by accident is one chance in 10 to the 17th power. Everybody goes, well, that's a big number, but what's that like? And so Peter Stoner goes on and said, well, what that number is like is imagine the state of... Of Texas that you could cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars and you mark one of those silver dollars and then you can fly around in a plane or a helicopter any way you want to go in Texas and that's the chance you reach down and pull up that one silver dollar. And I like to say to my secular friends, you're betting your eternal destiny on that one. And so if nothing else, it's one of the reasons why, if nothing else, we suggest that these arguments for Messianic prophecy are very powerful and at Christmas time, this is a great time to use this. If you know somebody you want to send one of these two as a booklet I'll give you an extra one uh, because these really get them thinking about this at Christmas time and of course many of these prophecies relate to his crucifixion and so this is also a great evangelistic tool at Easter so if nothing else I think we can see that but before we are done let me just mention there's one other prophecy that I think is really powerful and that is the fact that Psalm 16 said that God would not leave the Holy One Very obvious it's talking about the Messiah in hell, nor would his body see corruption. Well, it turns out that that particular prophetic utterance was then used by Peter when he stands in the temple steps on the day of Pentecost and says, as he's referring back to this, his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. And so again, it's interesting to see that we also not only have messianic prophecies that's the last one in the book here that give you an understanding of his death and burial but most importantly as it says here Jesus is alive his resurrection so if nothing else that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make that available a little booklet I think you can use it evangelistically and if that's an encouragement to you that was my goal Uh, some of you are saying okay what's the next um, ask Kirby question okay this one's coming in because if you were watching this week There are scientists now that at looking at mitochondrial DNA have really shaken up the whole theory of evolution because the research, if they actually take seriously the mitochondrial DNA, suggests that all of humankind originated from two adults. Now, they still put that back thousands of years earlier, but all of a sudden there are all sorts of people saying, now what? Oh, no. These, we, we, are, we evolved from pongid apes in the African plain. There were multiple pa- parents in all of this. So we're going to get into next week a little bit of science because now the scientific community is going, we didn't see that one coming. So we'll talk about that next week right here in the examine class. Parker?